This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. As always, I'm your host, Dave Moten. I'm the author and narrator of the main storyline, and with me, as always, is the the producer extraordinaire and the master of social media, Brent Van Tassel. Um, this episode takes sort of a turning point in Mindframe um, as it sees the beginning of what I would consider book two of the story. Um, it's still part of what I would call the first novel, but there's sort of a first part and a second part as things shift, and this is the beginning of that shift. So I'm glad that you've uh, hung around this long, and I hope you start to see uh, more and more questions get answered, and I hope you also enjoy the questions that come up as other ones get answered. So um, before I talk about uh, what's to come in this particular chapter and the new character that we're going to meet, um, I do need to, uh, as always, give a shout out to our primary sponsor, El Yucateco Hot Sauce, king of flavor since 1968. Um, again, we talk about them every week, and it's not just out of uh, fealty to their money, but it's out of a genuine love of the product. Uh, we, we wouldn't be pushing it if we didn't love it. We eat it almost every day. Brent eats it absolutely on every meal, not just almost every day. Uh, but uh, the last episode, I said that I was going to profile the flavors, and I already talked about the uh, Black Reserve. But this week, I want to say a little bit about their Triple X hot sauce, which is the hottest one of the of the brand. And uh, Brent would insist that it's the one with the best flavor. All of them um, have different uh, flavor profiles. Um, I find the flavor of Triple X to be amazing, but I'm also kind of a wimp, so it's a little bit on the hot side for me. But that means I just put it in dishes when I cook instead of like drowning a taco in it or something. But I know plenty of people that drown tacos in it. Um, but Triple X is, is sort of their gold standard. It's their, it's their hottest of their sauces. But uh, if you love hot sauce, check it out. If you don't love hot sauce and you know someone who does, uh, you can get it at Target. You can get it at your local grocers, uh, local uh, ethnic food marts or in the ethnic aisle. And you can always just go to elucateco.com. You can go to Amazon. You can get it somewhere. Gift it. It's an amazing, uh, life-changing hot sauce. So uh, check it out. Um, also, we are a member of the Podbelly Podcast Network, and in fact, we are a Podbelly original. If you want to learn a little bit about podcasting or find some other great podcasts, go to podbelly.com. And uh, last but not least, um, if you've hung around this long and uh, you're listening, then please consider uh, becoming a patron. Um, if you go to patreon.com backslash mindframepodcast, uh, you can find different levels that you can buy in on, and you can always uh, uh, buy the level that gives you uh, the the weekly drop of our um, bonus episodes, which are the sit-downs where myself and Zach Smith and uh, Brent talk about the episodes, the technology that's in there, the inspirations, the writing process, uh, questions. They often theorize about what's happening in the story, and I often keep my mouth shut and smile or stare into the corner so I can have a good poker face. But um, patreon.com, great way to support us, um, worth worth checking out. So this chapter is the beginning of uh, book two. And in fact, it is the prelude for book two. So it sort of sets things in motion and sets a slightly different tone for where we're going. And we meet a brand new character, a character named Hilt Burhan, who is one of Earth's five sheriffs. Um, and we see a very interesting investigation that he is knee deep on and uh, where it takes us. So um, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Book two, Prelude, Sheriff Hilt Burhan, 2142. Shoreditch, London, East End. Hilt had never been here before, London. His work took him everywhere in the solar system, but never here. He'd always wanted to see it. 
As a boy in Istanbul, his father used to talk about this place as if it were a wonderland from behind the looking glass. Hilt's grandfather had been stationed there as a soldier for the global police force. London took quite a beating in the war and nearly 60% of the city was leveled by a Berg bomb. The British persisted and fought, like they do, long past most other nations, and resistance was strong in their capital city. WorldGov decided not to totally raise it to the ground since the city was a symbol of much that the best of humanity had to offer. But enough of the city was destroyed that this rebuilt metropolis now had messenger tech running through it. This included, of course, the world-famous concentric conveyors that moved people, buildings, and entire neighborhoods to align for maximum city efficiency depending on the time of day. The city would align so housing areas were right next to industry and offices at morning rush hour, then those same working areas would find themselves next to dining and shopping areas around 5 p.m. and move back to housing areas around 7 for the home commute. Many Londoners only had to travel a few relative blocks in order to travel far across the city as its surface rotated like the world's most complicated watch face. Sadly, Hilt suspected that all he'd see of London on this visit was three locations. The staging area, when he landed, the artist's lofts he was currently inside of, and finally, either a detention center or a hospital by the time he was done serving the arrest papers. Arrests never went well when someone was what local SWAT called a good and proper deviant. Hilt stood in front of the oversized door of the loft. It was a sliding metal thing that a car could have driven through just off a massive old lift that still ran on pulleys and brakes. Based on the nature of this particular suspect, a native Londoner named Foster Berrycloth, Hilt thought it best to gear up and bring a team. He did not imagine the target would go gently. He brought a SWAT member from London named Jenkins and one of his own, a British ex-World Navy Marine named Wicket. Hilt met Wicket on an investigation of the Eleanor Gray and then reassigned him to keep the nature of Hilt's surprising inspection there a secret. He'd come to trust Wicket after a couple of arrests together, and he trusted Jenkins based on a very impressive resume full of accommodations and upvotes. Wicket and Jenkins both wore full soldier gear, torsion skirts, ebony face shields, sabers, and charged lances on their backs, which crackled with blue electric life. They also had stunner orbs on their belts. In fact, their orders were to use the stunners first and only go lethal if there was a true threat. And there could only be a true threat if the deviant they were after had some newly configured back engineering that the GPF hadn't encountered before. The odds were low of something lethal to the GPF armor, but Hilt had seen it all before, most notably the occasional bone blade. Hilt wore his official uniform, never donning the flowing armor and black face shields again. After his final upvote seven years ago, he was Sheriff Hilt Burhan, one of the five who ran all military and policing operations for terrestrial Earth and its immediate orbit. There were no more rungs for him to climb on the ladder of promotion. His uniform was more formal. It was a strange admixture of British military dress from two centuries ago, with lots of epaulets, buttons, and a chest flap, and a Nazi SS uniform coupled with something from a professional marching band. It was entirely black and summoned a feeling of historical dread and sovereignty, but somehow with a tiny dash of whimsy. Hilt would almost always forego wearing the tall Atlas Shakos hat that rounded the uniform out, even at formal affairs. 
The metal of the door was reflective, and he could see his image. The power of the sheriff's uniform, his long hair pulled into a tight bun, and his squared beard made him an imposing figure, even though he was a much shorter man than the two soldiers flanking him from behind. He reached down to feel the butt of his sidearm, and then over his shoulder to feel the handle of the saber on his back, just to remind his muscles of the exact distance to each. He held his hand out, and Wicket gave him a lockpick. It was the size of a soda can, and Hilt twisted it in the middle and felt it vibrate as tiny nubs squeezed out of multiple holes in the bottom. He set it against the door, and it crawled like an insect, using the nubs as feet. It was scanning the door to see what types of locks were being used and what countermeasures it needed in order to complete its breach. After a few seconds, it walked over to the edge of the door where the handle was and split itself up into four units, each about the size of a hockey puck. They walked around the door, getting thinner by the sliver until there were over a dozen pieces scuttling along the surface. Most of them walked to the right side of the door where more locks probably were, but a few went to the top and bottom of the door where a center bolt must have rested. They slid into cracks and vanished from view. A moment later, Hilt heard the three beeps in his comm as the lockpick signaled it was ready. There was a five-second delay as he and the two soldiers adjusted their stance. The pick did its job, unlocked or detonated all the locks in the same instant to a sound of metal twisting and small-scale pops that sounded like fireworks. The door slid open fast enough to be dangerous, and on the inside were two men, at the ready. Hilt and his men had been expected, most likely surveilled by a system his team didn't detect and disable on approach. The two men were just on the inside of the door. Hilt's brain registered only four details about the men that were important. First, the man to his right was holding a sophisticated military shotgun. Second, the one to his left held a highly customized sidearm. Third, the one with the shotgun was raising his shoulders. Fourth, the one with the pistol was lowering his shoulders. This meant shotgun was ready to attack and sidearm was surprised. So, shotgun. Hilt screamed, GPF, as he hopped forward at a 45-degree angle, shoulder-checking the shotgun. This put him behind the barrel instead of in front of it and pushed it over to the side. He did it just as the man fired, and he heard the shot hit Wicket, who exhaled from the training that said go limp when hit with a projectile. The brick below Hilt's feet cracked a little bit as the momentum of the slug was pushed all the way down the torsion skirt and sent from Wicket's body into the ground, which took the actual shotgun damage. Hilt knew a firearm was no threat at all to a GPF skirt, so it was the best play. He then jumped again in another 45-degree angle, but this time toward the one with the sidearm who was another step deeper into the apartment. The man was finally starting to boot up into threat mode and was raising the pistol. Hilt slid in front of him and executed a move he'd drilled thousands of times. His left hand came in at an expert angle on the inside of the man's wrist. Simultaneously, his right hand pushed the back of the gunman's palm, initiating an interesting wrist lock that also contained the weapon. The goal of this move was to get the barrel turned away from you and then take control of the wrist and disarm. The added bonus, which Hilt had never seen happen before tonight, was that the motion could force the gunman to squeeze his own trigger just when the pistol was at the most unfortunate angle. The man fired his own gun as Hilt controlled his hand and wrist, and the barrel was turned completely back and aiming at the gunman's face. The back of the deviant's head exploded as the bullet hit it, 
and Hilt kept hold of the gun and let the man's hand slide to the floor with the rest of his body. The one with the shotgun fired his weapon on automatic into Wicket's chest, torso, and now face. Hilt wasn't counting, but it felt like a cool dozen shots by this point. Wicket was shielding his face with his arms, not because the arms were more effective than the helmet and mask, but out of a basic human instinct to protect the face. The ground below Wicket was kicking up red dust as inertia continued to transfer down through the skirt. Hilt swiveled behind the shotgun man and pistol-whipped him in the base of the skull. This made him get a little limp, so Hilt struck the same spot a second time, and a third, and a fourth. On the fifth, he felt the crack. Either a vertebrae or part of the skull gave way, and the man fell limp. On your back, Jenkins said, and slid gracefully into the room, putting his back against Hilt's and scanning the room with his stunner in hand. Hilt emptied the ammo from the sidearm, throwing the bullets up the left of the hallway and the pistol up the right. He kicked the shotgun to Wicket's feet and turned to face the room, using Jenkins' armored body as an item of cover, as training indicated. The room was dark save streetlights coming through the oversized loft windows and the bare bulb in the hallway. He concentrated on sound, waiting to hear footfalls, the distinct sound of a blade leaving its sheath or a gun cocking. He heard nothing. He heard less than nothing. There was sound coming from the hallway behind him as Wicket tossed the empty shotgun down the hallway, but no sound came from in front of Jenkins. He realized all of Shoreditch was completely quiet from the front. He might not have noticed it if he wasn't used to the maddening shock of silence that came when he was living inside of someone else's dreams. But this wasn't a dream. So Hilt realized something inside must be absorbing or negating sound. A stealth device of some sort. Jenkins could be heard, though, as he screamed in horror and pain. Hilt felt half a dozen sharp jabs come from the man since he was pressed against him, still using his body as cover. He dove for cover deeper inside the flat, executing a shoulder roll and getting back to his feet behind a wide metal support beam. Hilt now faced the door with his back to the room, and he saw exactly what he had feared. Jenkins was standing and holding his hands to his masked face in agony. Bony spikes and protrusions were jutting from inside of his body and splitting the torsion skirt from within. All of his bones had just been weaponized. They were liquefied and morphed into spikes aiming outward as they recalcified. What was left was the twisted statue of a vaguely human form, a celebration of bone spurs coated in blood and what were once vital organs. The torsion skirt and uniform were the only thing that gave it an even mildly human form. Nobody was near Jenkins, so it couldn't have been a bone knife. That meant it was a crossbone, and that was bad news. He saw Wicket, using the brick wall in the hallway as cover, suddenly look as he drew his stunner, a pure black sphere that made it look like his hand was replaced with a ball. Wicket aimed upward and fired several times. Hilt looked up at Wicket's target, and he saw Foster Berrycloth, the man they were here to arrest, the good and proper deviant. Hilt had interrogated Berrycloth last night through dream forensics to get this location out of him. The man was wearing a very strange exoskeleton that had four long and lanky limbs. They were attached to the high loft ceiling and kept him up and out of sight. The limbs were highly articulated and looked like some horrible mix between a daddy long leg spider and an octopus. They kept Berrycloth in an upright position, feet to the ground, head to the ceiling, even though that was not the most efficient angle for his body to be at the moment. Interesting. 
The energy from the stunner was sliding through the mechanical limbs, making strips of them glow red. It was absorbing the stunner blasts, leaving Berrycloth unharmed. The thing was probably designed to absorb energy strikes from a MoU, but the stunner would do for now. Hilt noted that as the limbs plunged their spiked appendages into the wood of the ceiling, there was no sound. The Deviant must be wearing the sound-negating device, or it was part of the strange exoskeleton that otherwise looked quite noisy. The Deviant fired the crossbone at Wicket, who had ducked back behind the brick wall. The bricks distorted and crumbled, and grew to be a mass of spikes for several feet, as the bolt did something similar with the minerals of the brick as it would do to the minerals of the human body. Hilt said, Ventilate, ventilate, into his calm, and instantly the sky was filled with electricity. He was making his body have as small a profile as possible behind the metal support beam, and his head was facing down. From that angle, Hilt saw the hair on the man who shot himself in the face stand on end, dancing around the bullet wound as if that was how the soul evacuated a human body. Hilt's personal MoU was above the building, and it just came to life. It ventilated. Arcs of pure blue electricity sheared the wall and windows off of the outside of the loft. Hilt could feel the heat as the material was turned to slag, and the glass and brick were no more. The Deviant didn't even pause. His strange limbs lurched once and flung him out of the fifth-story opening where the wall was. Hilt could see the limbs hug the outside wall to climb the man down safely. He ran across the room, drawing his vibro-saber, and dropping himself out the opening directly above Barrycloth. Three of the man's harness limbs were climbing him down the wall, and the fourth suddenly moved to a defensive position. The Deviant's body was still vertical. He was looking up at Hilt and steadied the small crossbones at him. But another blast from Wicket's stunner above shook the man, and he dropped the small crossbow into the night. Barrycloth cursed, but the sound was still being stifled by his suit. As the Deviant reached to his side to draw a bone blade from a sheath, Hilt made contact. The exosuit's arm tried to block the swing of the saber. Well, it did block it, but the block didn't matter. The saber fired up, a thousand impossibly thin and strong blades sliding back and forth against each other. It cut through the gangly thing and down into the crown of Barry Cloth's head. His body wilted lifelessly as the back third of his cranium was sheared off. The blade quit buzzing in Hilt's hand as he sheathed it in a fluid motion that rounded out his simple, elegant strike, all while still falling. He heard the click of a thousand shutters and gears above his head as his Mo-Yu writhed and altered its own shape. Hilt saw the pulses of lightning reaching the ground and being pulled into the lances of the soldiers surrounding the building. He felt the thrill of electricity pass through his body as one of the arcs hit him directly. When it fed into his belt and sash, the writhing lightning turned into a solid beam of light that held Hilt snugly. He lowered slowly to the ground as several voices said clear up in the building and surrounding it. Once Hilt was securely on the ground, the arc of energy dislodged itself from him and swung to another officer's waiting lance like a jump cut. Hilt put on his dark glasses so the Mo-Yu wouldn't blind him and looked up at what was left of the apartment. He was wrong in his earlier assumption about Shoreditch. It would not end with a hospital or a detention center. It would end with him at a residence, telling loved ones that Jenkins died with distinction serving the one world government in its efforts to open the Lariat. He died stopping the bad guy. Wicket stood looking out the hole where the wall once was. 
So much for our last deviant lead, huh, boss? He said over the comm. Hilt said, not true. He gave up the identity of a witness, even though he didn't know it. He couldn't divulge the existence of his techniques to someone as low-ranking as Wicket, but as he crouched over Barry Cloth's glassy eyes and spilled head, he wanted to say, I interrogated him last night when we shared a dream. Hilt Berhan sat on the edge of his bunk, lights off. A control panel on the wall that monitored ship systems was all the illumination he'd need. He sat directly across from the door to the head in his tiny cabin. The door was mirrored, and he was center frame. His thick black beard had just been trimmed minutes ago, so it was square and perfectly level on the bottom. He had removed his rank insignia and the day wear and weapons that were part of his uniform, so he wouldn't be poked by all of it as he slept. On a black diamond, you had to sleep in the uniform because it was the only way to interface with the command chair and the only way to plug into an evac suit or the escape pod if things ever got tense. But Hilt liked the uniform. He always had, so much so that if he really had to admit it, the sleek, dense jacket and striped pants of a GPF officer's uniform may have been why he initially decided to apply for the global police force instead of the World Navy. The Black Diamond issued an almost imperceptible low tone to indicate it was about to speak. After a pause long enough for Hilt to stop it if he wanted to, the Diamond said, Sheriff Berhan, you wanted me to notify you when Ensign Adil was lights out. Her room just went dark, 18 minutes ahead of normal. Hilt nodded, more because he was lost in thought than because he needed to signal anything to the ship's system. He asked, Is she alone? I believe so, Sheriff. Nobody else was registered to enter a room at the front desk. No station records indicate that she took anyone home for the evening. She should be alone and sleeping soon. Hilt didn't think his target would have gone home with anyone for the evening, and he was surprised at how glad he was that she wasn't cheating on her live-in girlfriend back on Luna. He would have to employ rather different types of forensic dreaming and interrogation techniques for someone prone to infidelity on shore leave. Hilt said, Continue running, full dark. Prepare to make evasive maneuvers if needed. I can't imagine we'll need to, boss, but I am keeping an eye out. They can't see me, but I can see them. I'll be watching, the Black Diamond said, in its perfect standard. It had the slightest of an Australian accent that the previous sheriff must have told it to use. Hilt used to bristle at the computer's linguistic capabilities and plastic personality, but he'd come to appreciate it over the years. He marveled at the system's AI, and marveled a level deeper when he realized the plans were beamed down just to work with Black Diamond ships. All that effort to create only five of them. So much variation came from the Kel Democratia. Exactly how big was this interstellar government? How many types of vessel did they have, and for how many purposes? He'd know the answer to these questions and so many more within the year. The Lariat was closing. He stood and grabbed the inhaler from the drawer near the head of the bed and set it to a metered two-hour sleep. He took a drag of the mist, which tasted remarkably like brown sugar, and slid it back into the drawer. He straightened his uniform and laid down. Just as the effects were hitting his brain in a warm and gradual decline, the Black Diamond said, Good night, Sheriff. He thought about responding since he was never certain of the Diamond's true capacity for thought or feeling, but realized the system never slept so it was a pointless gesture. Hilt entered the space where dreams were known. His subject, Ensign Yushva Adil, was born in the city of Karachi 
but had been a lunar resident since she graduated the Naval Academy and earned her own post 12 years ago. She had a simple apartment there that she shared with her partner. They lived near a park and a nice neighborhood for dining out, though Hilt could never understand the appeal of dome living. His Black Diamond missions were cramped enough, and even then he knew that the missions were short-lived and soon he'd have all of Earth to roam. Ensign Adil was a flight attendant on a long-distance passenger shuttle for the World Navy. Her route was from the civilian airport outside of the dome over Shackleton Crater on Luna to a traffic point a quarter distance to Sol Space. She'd serve passengers on their trip from Shackleton to the Finley traffic station. Mostly construction crew and engineers heading to and from the Lariat shipyards, Akunga Station, or Mining Station Delta. While there, she'd spend a few days on a cramped shore leave, confined even for a resident of the moon, and then head back to Luna with a new berth of passengers. Her service record was typical for World Navy, and by typical, Hilt realized he meant boring, and boring was good. There were very few upvotes, no downvotes, and no real pressing reason for either. She did her job, letter of the law, fed people and kept them sane on their three-week journey. No combat, but why would there be? She stood a good chance of retiring as an ensign, but that wasn't bad either, he supposed. A life of service toward the Lariat was its own reward. No need for promotions when you worked on a ship with no crew beneath you and you had the love of a woman waiting for you back home. And tonight, this naval nobody was the subject of Hilt's forensic dreaming. The human race, of course, had 25 couriers who were instrumental in translating the alien dreams of the messengers into actionable blueprints and schematics. When one of the Earth's 25 couriers died 15 years ago in a deviant bombing, the WorldGov Enclave was in mourning for losing one of their own. The investigation swift and the outcome predictable, the deviant terrorists. But recently, when Hilt investigated a deviant cell forming in Atlantis, he learned through forensic dreaming that some deviants had seen said courier three years after his supposed death. That raised enough questions to place the courier's death and or survival as one of his open investigations. In the past year, he'd followed a dozen leads down to one final person, and that was Barry Cloth. Hilt had used dream forensics to assemble the following facts about the case. 1. The courier was delivered to Barry Cloth. As a general rule, Barrycloth never wanted to know who he was smuggling off of Earth, but in this case, he recognized the courier. 2. Barrycloth and the courier boarded a civilian launch that headed to Shackleton. 3. Once there, Barrycloth used some gaps in World Navy security to walk the courier to a new ship. 4. Barrycloth did everything in his power to learn as little as possible, not the name of the ship, the time of the departure, the destination, anything. But five, Barrycloth saw a woman in naval black walk past the passenger line and board the ship, obviously part of the crew. This woman's name tape could not be fully made out, even in the dream, but Barrycloth got a clear look at her face. And in the dream, so did Hilt. So he drew her and ran the sketch through the black diamond. It was Ensign Yushva Adil. She'd have unknowingly been the courier's flight attendant on that trip, so certainly her conscious brain would be lacking any details of a random passenger. But her forensic dream state would be capable of near-perfect recall if she was properly interrogated. Hilt had parked the Black Diamond just over the shoulder of her ship, the LPS Francisca Okeke, which was currently docked at Finley Station. 
He had to burn like hell to catch her before her shore leave ended in the morning, when she'd fly back, earthward. Hilt was asleep, but it was early enough that he couldn't be certain Adil was dreaming. He used the first step to an interrogation of someone in a large crowd, and he initiated mass dreaming. Everyone in range who was asleep would now enter a dream state. The place where dreams were known exploded in activity as Hilt was confronted with a thousand dreams from a thousand people, all floating in the periphery of his existence like little bubbles of artificial reality, each one wanting to be noticed or hidden. He could feel the ones that were natural and the ones he had forced into existence. He pushed away all the dreams that he hadn't forced on people since the deal wouldn't be in that population. He was left with a much smaller number. He touched several and realized many felt masculine, so he drove those away as well. And that was more like it. Once the field was more narrow, the dream found him. He'd studied the ensign long enough to find her musings to be familiar, and her mind reached out for that familiarity. He inserted himself into her nocturnal musings. Her dream was set in a mall, a grand multi-story shopping center. Something from Earth for sure. It was large enough that it suggested a fifth house plaza, but her records indicated that Adil lived a much more mundane childhood than that level of secret privilege. The colors of the place were old, the fashions out of date. The dream was a recollection of a childhood place, or perhaps a piece of cinema she watched regularly as a child. Most dream spaces were reflections of lost childhood experiences when you really got down to it, even if the dreamer herself didn't know that. Once in her psyche, Hilt leaned into the core of the thing and slid through walls and past people until he was near a railing on the third story of the plaza. Ensign Adil was there speaking to a man dressed like a baker, but speaking was too liberal a term. They faced each other and moved their mouths every so often and gestured. There were no words. There was no noise. The sparse soundscape of forensic dreams was very off-putting at first, Everything felt like a ghost town, an echo of reality. There were no sounds inside another person's dream, no smells, no details. Half the world would lack color. People would have no clothing, but not exactly be naked, more like sexless amorphous humanoids in the periphery of the dreamer. And often, people were faceless, like creatures from a horror film with no mouth and no eyes. This lack of sensory input made it feel like the mind was meager and barren, but Hilt knew that wasn't true. Only he experienced the dream in the raw. The dreamer's mind would have backfilled things, assumed there were sounds where there were none, added faces to the faceless. The human mind was all about efficiency, and every detail it didn't need in a dream was quite simply not there. But from Hilt's role as intruder, the people were faceless horrors. The world was perfectly silent and even entire parts of the building would vanish or lose details as the dreamer's mind had no more need for them. The thing that took him the longest to adapt to was the fact that Hilt himself was not breathing, had no heartbeat, and his feet didn't make a sound if he walked. But over time, Hilt had become okay with the dream's gaunt, barren structures. He touched the ensign on the shoulder and said, OKK's okay, cockpit, remember? and they were suddenly sitting in the cockpit of the LPS Francisca Okeke. It was the first contact in his interrogation, and it worked as well as he could have expected. His own mind summoned the cockpit of the ship. He knew he didn't have all the details right when he built the place around her, but as with everyone in a forensic dream, Ensign Adil didn't care. 
Hilt felt her mind make adjustments, and he let them flow out of her as the cockpit changed angles and shapes until it was, he assumed, more like the real thing. That was another important part of the interrogation, the give and take of details and reality between two minds. In this new cockpit, Hilt realized they were under thrust, and based on the location of the sun, they were headed toward Finley Station again, just as he had wanted. He had dressed himself like a lieutenant in the World Navy, which was the rank of the command for this class of shuttle. If she managed to remember this dream in the morning, she'd probably recall Hilt as being her actual lieutenant, or as being her lieutenant, but not quite her lieutenant, as you do when you wake up from the madness that is dreaming. Hilt was piloting and looking back near a door where a deal stood. He took up the middle of a conversation, knowing she'd backfill the gaps and join right in. He said, So go ahead and let the rest of the crew know I've approved two of the passenger special requests. This one needs time in a booth to take in extra artificial sunlight for medical treatment, Hilt said, bringing up a picture on one of the screens. He didn't know who to use, so he picked his drill sergeant at the last second, surprised at his own choice. He hated that hard woman. Make sure she gets that time, Adil said. Aye, sir. And the second one? Not as pressing, Hilt said. A man wants to let his kids see the cockpit. He brought up a picture of his target. The courier was wearing his flowing gowns because of all the security images Hilt had viewed in the past year. But he forced it to be civilian clothes suddenly, something that an engineer would wear. He forced a kid in there, some bad movie star from his childhood named Luke Kwan. Ensign Adil grinned widely, and Hilt knew she recognized the kid. He didn't worry about it. Dreams were meant to be weird, even forensic ones. Let the crew know I've authorized that. Let's do it before a light's out so there isn't much ruckus in the cabin. Affirmative, Adil said. Hilt paused and then he leaned on her hard enough that the cockpit refracted a bit and started to take on a round edge like a bubble. He said, He flew with you once before. You remember the last time he flew with you, Yushva? That's where you are right now, isn't it? You're right, yeah, she said. And they weren't on thrust anymore. They were slowed for docking maneuvers near Finley Station. It was wild with activity and a massive fleet hovered nearby, several of the capital ships the size of the station itself. The ensign started to talk and then switched up and sang the theme song from Just for Kicks, the old serialized action comedy that the boy actor was in. Hilt didn't care. He was using the scanner on the dream ship to identify the fleet. It didn't take long. He targeted the largest ship and zoomed in on it, filling the screen with a visual. There was only one ship of its make in the entire Earth system. It was the Tehachapi, the Alpha Messenger's flagship. That meant that Hilt's dead-alive courier was most likely there. And it meant the mystery just got about 50 layers deeper and more important. Because this dream had just proven that Master Fang was not dead at all. In fact, he was back aboard the Tehachapi. Thus ends the first half of our prelude for book two of Mindframe, the introduction to Sheriff Hilt Burhan. You'll want to tune in to our next episode, which will be part two of this prelude before we get back into the regular rotation of chapters. Um, as always, thank you so much for El Yucateco. As always, make sure that you buy a bottle, put it on your food, taste it, smile, and thank us. Um, as always, we want to thank Podbelly where you can go to find other great podcasts such as Robots for Eyes out of the UK and Art and Jacob do America out of America, or else their name isn't very accurate. 
But uh, podbelly.com, you can find great podcasts and some good information on podcasts. Um, as always, if you're in the mood for an inappropriate laugh, you can check out our other uh, podcast, which is the Sofa King podcast, which is also on Podbelly Network or wherever you get your uh, podcasts. Um, it is myself and uh, Brent and our other partner, Brad Taylor, as we do a research on a topic that our listeners pick, and then we tell bad jokes about it and try to cover some material. It's not safe for work, but it's a lot of fun. So if that's your thing, then um, check them out on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast, on Instagram at The Mindframe Podcast and on Twitter at The Mindframe Pod. Um, even if you can't support us on Patreon, um, a great way to show love for the show and give us some support is just a share or a like uh, word of mouth, whether it's while you're talking to your neighbor while socially distancing or whether it's a shout out on social media, it goes a long way to spread the love and spread the gospel uh, that is Mindframe. And as always, if you want some good books to read, you can check out my first novel, which is on our uh, store where you can get lots of merch and you can also find the books of Zach Smith, who is the co-host of our sit down episodes. Um, so I think that's about it for this week. Um, again, this is part one of the prelude. So definitely tune in for the next one. And as always, remember, the Lariat is closing.